you are in the perfect place at the divine time to be touched by a horse. Here's your hosts, Melissa Pierce and Dane Cheek. Hi, everybody. It's Melissa, and thanks so much for joining me again today. We are not on with Dane. I know some people will really miss him because he's been a lot of fun in these podcasts. We are on with a dear friend of mine and a graduate of my EGC program, and she's in our master's program right now of GCM from Montana, my dear friend, Hertha Lund. Hi, Hertha. Hi, Melissa. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Yeah, this will be fun, kind of talking about a thousand different things. We'll see where our nose takes us, right? I usually start start these by asking people, did you have a horse when you were little? But I know some of your story, it was your pony. So tell us a little bit about that pony. And and you grew up in Montana, right? Yes, we had a ranch in north central Montana. And I have a twin brother. So when you grow up on a ranch, you usually have gentle horses and each kid gets to cycle through them. Well, I didn't get the gentle one because he was a little bit less, less aggressive in his persona and riding than I am. And so I got the, a Shetland pony and his name was Little Red. Now, Little Red came to us. He was a big pony, about 13 hands, beautiful bay, but um, he was green broke. And so I'm only like five years old, six years old on this pony who's green broke, riding him bareback everywhere. And I just, oh yeah, I just loved him. But he um, had this habit of he would shy and get rid of me and run back to the barn. <laughs> Shetlands are known for that, aren't they? I mean, everybody says, oh, I'll get my child a Shetland, but they're actually little, um, they have minds of their own and they do things the way they want them done. And yeah, and there's no miniature trainers to train them. So kids often have to get on there and do that. So little red, I bet you had some other names for him even at five years old. So <laughs> I think I called him some things I shouldn't have when I was walking back to the barn. <laughs> And then I would absolutely. Yeah, and then I would get to him, and I would I would be like, "Oh, I love you, little red. You didn't mean it." And then we'd go through the whole thing again. So. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, I know yeah. when I was a child, uh, my horses weren't on my own property. You know, my mine were a mile or so away from my house at a boarding farm. But when I was a kid, my household was not a happy place. My parents didn't get along, so my horses were really my refuge. And then when they do something like dump me or something, I was doubly hurt. It was like, wait a minute, I come to you to get my heart put back together, you know, and you dump me. So yeah, kind of part of that. Was your pony your escape, a little bit your escape from your family? Absolutely. We lived out in the middle of the Missouri River Breaks, a really rough country. And I wanted to get out of the house as much as possible because that wasn't a safe place for me. So I would go get on Little Red and that was my slice of heaven. I mean, yeah, he'd get rid of me and I'd have to get him again, but I'd just get on and we'd go again. It was my slice of heaven. And I really did love him. Sometimes he didn't deserve it. And then when he was older, he actually ended up jumping pretty good. We had this fence at our the ranch we moved to next, and it was a solid fence. I thought on TV it was a fence. Yeah. So I just made him jump over the fence. And it was... Oh, I get yeah. it. Oops. <laughs> and, and he jumped, you know, he tucked his little legs up. And, and my legs were long <laughs> enough at that time, because I'm like nine or oh 10, my gosh. that the toes would almost hit the railings. And then I would jump him double bareback. <laughs> over the same fence. Oh yeah, that's fun. <laughs> Honestly, we're lucky to be alive. When you if you're a kid without parent parental supervision around horses, you're just lucky to be alive. Have you ever gone back to that ranch to see whether it looks different to you? I my friend in Texas, my dad did a lot of business at Texas Instruments, so we'd fly to Texas and I thought she was the luckiest little girl in the world because she had two Shetland ponies and her dad would saddle up these Shetlands and we'd get to ride them and we'd ride to her grandmother's house. We'd tie them up at the tie rail, have lunch or cookies or whatever, get back on 
on them and ride back. Honestly, I was probably five. Later, when I saw it as an adult, all of that was on five acres. Like it was two homes on five acres. We were riding. You could throw a stone almost as far as we were riding, but it felt like I was in the middle of, you know, My Friend Flicka or Fury or one of the shows I watched as a kid. Have you ever gone back to look at the size of where you were riding, the space? I haven't, but at that time we actually ran on 30,000 acres. Yeah, so it was big. So it was huge. <laughs> it was yeah. big. It was big. You got me on that one. It wasn't five acres. You've got me on that one. So that's pretty fun. So you and your husband live on your ranch today. I'm going to see it for myself in July. I'm excited. Up near the place where I do my retreats, which is the Bonanza Creek Ranch owned by the Voldseth family. Does your property actually join fence with theirs? That's what I understood. Yeah. Yes, we're we're next door neighbors and June's husband, David's and my husband's great grandpa homesteaded there before Montana was a state about a year, within a year of Custer's last stand. He came over from Norway. Wow. It's such a powerful story. I love it when I hear it from June and just to have that history on that ranch. It's gorgeous part of Montana. All of Montana is pretty darn nice. And you guys have cattle on it as well as your horses. Correct. Yep. We're a cattle ranch and then I run a few horses. Yeah. And I got you addicted to a certain breed of horse, didn't I? You did. I was a little bit skeptical (laughs) about what I thought. I'm not really a fad person. And so everybody was kind of gaga about these horses. And then I went to a sale and I fell in love with one. And now I have, I don't know, five or six, seven. I don't know. They're like potato chips. The gypsy vanner is what we're talking about. (laughs) So they're like potato chips. So all my life, I ride quarter horses and paints that are major athletes and real agile and, you know, quick and all of that stuff. Then I fell in love with the gypsies and I know some of my horse buddies look at me and roll their eyes like, what does she see in these gypsies? But once you're around them, you have to have them. You have to. They're just too cool. They're too fun. I agree. They're they're so smart. They're so kind. There's a, the difference between them and I rode a lot of colts raises when I grew up. In fact, I don't think I hardly had any broke horses. We'd get, a, we'd get them broke and then we'd sell them. So I'd just start over again with a young horse. And the difference between most of the gypsies that I've, I've been on and the quarter horses is that the gypsy will see something. They're not a deadhead. They just look at it and they decide it's okay. Whereas the quarter horse might react. And so far, the one I ride Monk, one of my gypsies for ranch work, he's plenty athletic enough. I don't think he can outrun, you know, he's not a racehorse, but he's fast enough to be a cow horse. Yeah, it's so fascinating how their brains work. They're, uh, you know, I have alpacas too, and the alpacas are always a thing that would normally terrify a horse. Alpaca gets curious about and goes toward it. So that where the horse would go away from it, the alpaca will go toward it. So I don't know if that's a sign of intelligence, <laughs> which direction that is, but it's interesting. But I find the gypsy. Gypsies are kind of like the horse equivalent of that. They get they get something that that kind of bothers them, and they turn it into curiosity. Well, what what is that? Let me let me check that out. What is that? So I love them. I'm real high on the breed, as you well know. So they're a lot of fun. So you came into the Touch by a Horse program, and I think I know who did the retreat and how it happened. I think I've heard the story, but would you share with our listeners how you stumbled across my work and what that journey was like for you? Yes, I I attended a retreat put on by Jamie Stolfus in Montana, I think about seven years ago. And my sister, I have a younger sister, and we try to do something. She's married to a rancher in eastern Montana. So it's about a six, seven hour drive between us. And we try to do something with horses together each year. So I thought, well, I looked at June had these retreats. June Valseth is next door, Bonanza Creek. And I thought, well, let's try this. And we looked at the pictures 
decided who we wanted to go to. But we we didn't know really what it was. I mean, we thought, you know, we were going to go do something, learn about horses and riding. And I had, yeah, I had no idea. And I had some unpacked trauma from my childhood that I'd never really looked at. But in the atmosphere, there was another two sisters from Iowa who my sister and I are still friends with them. And we do something with them almost every year. You met at the retreat? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lifelong friends are made at these retreats. I'll tell you. That's nice to hear. And so then what happened? At the retreat, I did some work and Jamie was like an angel to me. As you know, she is beautiful. She's a beautiful person inside and Mm -hmm. out. She is. And she was younger than me. And my trauma was such that I was pretty cagey. I didn't let myself, I didn't trust anybody who might be higher up than me because that to me was unsafe. She was perfect in every way for you know me to, you know, to look at some stuff. And I believe that if I hadn't done that work with her that year, the year and a half later, when I had the near-death experience, I might not have chosen to come back. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. So important. And we had a great time. We had a great time riding. Um, June let us, you know, Heidi and I, we had our own horses. And since we were next door, you know, so we had a great time. And my horse Buddy was there at June's working as one of her guest horses. So it was like a family retreat. Yeah, no kidding. Jamie's quite talented. And she has a, another company called Cowgirl Meat Company. So just incredibly clean beef. If you're looking for meat, look up Cowgirl Meat Company as well. So yeah, I, I love Jamie. And I'm so glad she led you to doing your original pieces of work. And then when did you realize it was a program and you wanted to come into the program? Well, first, I tried to talk my sister into it because she has a master's in psychology and she was a school psychologist. I didn't think I had time because I had my own law practice and <laughs> Heidi wasn't biting. And you were trying so, to throw, throw somebody under my bus before yourself. <laughs> yes. Oh, so um, I think then I chose to come to one of your retreats. Oh yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. So I that's did right. that. I did that. To, I guess I was checking you out. Yeah. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> yeah. So then I decided to take the program. And for me, I wasn't necessarily looking for another job, but I thought, you know, when I had the near-death experience, that kind of rewires, I yeah, I was getting rewired, literally. It's an amazing experience. And I needed a safe place to unpack that and to go deep within and make the changes that I knew I had to make. And that's my prompting was that your program would be a safe place for me to go through that. Yeah, exactly. And I do think it all kind of snuck up on you how much you were going to be loving doing the work yourself and being a coach yourself. And I'm good with people coming in the program for whatever their motivation is is. And I do remember that you came in because you had a really deep desire to deeply understand yourself, rewire, get everything set. And in the process, you found out, huh, I think I might like to do this for other people, you know, from you, which I'm thrilled about because you're a beautiful coach. So you've mentioned twice on here, and I know the story, but what's your encapsulated version of this near-death experience? Because it was a powerful, powerful experience for you. So I don't want to blow past it and have the listeners thinking, well, what was it? Yeah, I've been physically sick for a year with pericarditis, so inflammation around my heart, and it got worse and worse. And finally, I was in, I'd been hospitalized for several weeks. And one night I was laying there and I was on oxygen and had severe inflammation around my heart and lungs at that time, pericarditis, pneumonia, pleuritis, almost every itis you can get around your heart and lungs. And I was talking to God, it's like I could die. And they said, yes, you could. And and then I'm like, well, I don't really like it here. And that was some of the work that I've done in the program with you. And I left and I was happy about it. I mean, I was into such a sense of peace, love, light, warmth. And I was watching, observing this 
And I said, you know, it's true. They tell us when we die, we don't think about what we achieved or how much money we made. I didn't think of any of that. I only thought about who I loved. And I was so excited. And then I realized I wasn't done. I, w- I wanted to go home. And, and then I'm like, but I'm not done. So I made a promise to do whatever it took to become whole and get in my body. And I crawled back in my sick inflamed body. It was like calling back into roadkill. And and now I'm so grateful I did because it's it's so worth it now that I feel more whole and I, life is so different for me. I had no idea life could be this good. And I do love coaching. Yeah. And love your life and love your husband and love all of it that you couldn't before yes. that experience to do. So I hear in my head that that crazy cowboy comedian that's, you know, get her done. You know, it's <laughs> like you decided, well, I better go back and get her done. Yep. <laughs> get done what I I'm supposed to get done on this planet. That's for sure. And I know for me, having heard your experience a couple of times, that that's how I hold, I call it the other side of the veil, but that's how I hold that too, is that it's not something to be frightened of. It's not something to regret. It's not an experience that we should be worried about or be scared about. But gosh, how wonderful we can be here on this side of the veil and get every contribution we want to make on this planet, every legacy we want to set, every everything, you know, live it to its real fullest. So when we do go into peace, we can really enjoy being there, you know, and, and, and be there. I, I will be seeing you there, sister, (laughs) someday. Not too soon. Not too soon, I hope. No. But someday. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. For you, this last year or so, you've been working, well, you wrote a beautiful story for our anthology that will be coming out in uh, September. It's a collection of 15 of our certified practitioners and their personal experiences with this gestalt work, with horses, with the, it, some are told from the perspective of work they've done with their clients. Some are told from the perspective of work that I've done with them, so, you know, all different ones. It's, they're fascinating to read. And this will be our fourth anthology coming out. And Hertha, you have a great story contributing to that book. Thank you. And that kind of got you on the road to writing a full book. And so tell us a little bit about the book that you're writing and when it will come out. And and I've read sort of the working manuscript of it, so to speak. So the title right now is Awakenings. And I tell the story about first is the background of my life and it sets up, it's kind of a high, high, quick overview, but it sets up the, where the trauma happened and how I developed habits of consciousness that really no longer serve me, but, but I needed then. And it, it shows how we learn in your program about how lightning strikes. And I made some decisions early on. Those served me for a time and they helped me achieve many things, mm-hmm. but they also killed me in a way because you know I didn't let love in and I really pushed myself hard. I was an overachiever to the max. So that's kind of in the first part of the book. And then I talk more about the near-death experience, a little bit larger version than I shared with you today. But then next is the fun part. And it's these spirals of awareness that I learned when I was while I was healing. And there's so many of them. And that part of the book is hard to tell. I can't tell it linearly because to me, wholeness and healing happens in spirals. I learned how to think of myself as four lower bodies are four horses, because if I go back in my childhood, the time that I felt closest and most connected always was with horses. And I rode a lot of young horses. So I want to ask you a question on that. So because our listeners, some of them may not have the same vocabulary or understanding in the world. So you say our four lower bodies. So translate that for listeners. What do you mean by that? Sure. You know, I think we're all very 
aware that we have a physical body. That's what we mostly associate with our lives. But I've experienced that there's more to it. There's everything's energy, even our physical body's energy. So when I think of the four lower bodies, I think of there's a spiritual body. And you know, that one, I think, is most connected to the above and beyond us, the, you know, the divine. And then there's the mental body, then the emotional body, and the physical body. While I was healing, I was watching the different parts of me kind of perk up and come up. And I, would, I was trying to figure out how to hold everything together because you know, things were coming to life that you know, hadn't spoken for a long time. And I used to ride all those young horses. And for me, riding the young colt was the most successful way was to be sit chilly in the middle, yeah. you know, really quiet <laughs> because, yeah, you know, if they right. jump and I jump, you know, pretty soon we have a problem. Oh yeah. You have to, you have to always remember you're a guest in their house. <laughs> That's for sure. And, and since I'd had that experience and I also had had a, a dressage horse that I felt so connected with when I was riding him, it was like, when you hear great music, you know, you can see it sometime in a sunset. I felt that extraordinary out of this world connection. And so I thought about that. It's like, huh, I think I can use what I've learned there and from the horses with how I relate to these parts of myself. And I also loved horses. And I, I also felt like the key to healing was love. And so I learned how to love the different parts of myself and bring them home and also help to direct them. Because when I was riding colts, you know, I was a guest with them, but I also had to give them some direction. Touched by a Horse offers three comprehensive programs giving you the ability to have the career you've always dreamed about, working in partnership with the magic of horses. Our equine facilitator program provides you with the skills to build a thriving business hosting group experiences with horses. Our equine gestaltist program prepares you to open your own private gestalt practice in partnership with horses. And our master equine gestaltist program builds your gestalt skills both in and outside the round pen. All of our programs include in-depth live classes, business growth training, and a supportive community of herd members to collaborate with and learn from. Visit our website at touchedbyahorse.com to learn more about which program is right for you and your healing herd. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So in Gestalt, we, for the listeners more than for you, you already know this, but in Gestalt, the sort of father of Gestalt was a German man named Fritz Perls. And one of the things that he believed and that I have found to be extremely true is for people to have mental health, physical health, emotional health, all of that, the higher the person's self-awareness is of all the operating parts of themselves, their resistances, and the actual different personas and the different ways we approach life or we feel that a certain part of our personality directs something or is in charge of something, the more recognition and awareness we have of that, the healthier a person we are. So I might say a part of myself is my teacher part. I have a strong master teacher inside of me. That teacher aligns with my analytical self, my humanistic self, you know, all comes together to to do teaching, but I have other parts. I have an earth mother that is definitely takes in all the 
underdogs of the world and, you know, wants to give love out everywhere there. So we have all these different parts of self and it's a powerful journey to work with any one of our practitioners to discover who your parts of self are, who they align with, who they try to kick off the island, who gets along with who, who's polarized with who, and how it shows up, how they formed and how it shows up in your life. So if you're a listener and you're curious about any of that, all of our practitioners are certified in helping people find those different parts, identify them, work with them. They can do it over Zoom and they love doing it in person, obviously, but many of them can do it over Zoom. So you can always contact us at office at Touch by Horse or write to me, M-E-L-I-S-A at Touch by Horse, and I'll align you with just the right practitioner to do that work. So you took that parts of self-work, but you took it to a very creative stance. The name of your company is Four Horses to Wholeness. So talk about these four horses. Yes. So while I was doing my inner healing and, you know, I actually had had this visualization. My spiritual horse was a white stallion and he hardly caused any trouble. But my mental horse was a bay stallion and he caused so many you know, it'd be like the team would be going down the road and he'd run off, you know, bolt away and wreck the wagon. And I'd have to put all the pieces back together. So he was a problem causer. My emotional body was a Palomino mare and she was kind of sulky, you know, a little bit snarky. And there were times in the healing journey, I had to put her in the round corral for <laughs> really, because she was causing trouble. Teach her some respect. Yes. And then the physical body of my inner horses in my mind's eye was a bay and she was a draft horse, a, you know, big bay mare really kind, you know, but she really put her foot down because the other, the emotional horse and the mental horse, the stallion and the mare who was driving all the time, she couldn't keep up with him anymore. And she was not going to take another step forward until we got into balance. I mean, she just said no. And that was the near death experience. Yeah. And so while I was doing this healing and seeing them, I actually attracted these outer horses. (laughs) The first one I got was the emotional horse. And the outer horse is, she's not Palomino. She's a bay mare. In real world. Yeah. In the real world. Yep. And that was my first one. And then the next one I got was um, Mystic, the spiritual body horse. And she's my first gypsy. She's a gypsy shire. And Oh my God, I love that mare. So they all started manifesting in real horse form when at first you're talking about parts of self and these imaginary metaphors, if you will, and personas for these horses. And then they all manifest themselves into your life. I love it. Mystic is very similar in some ways to the one that I had internally that I thought of as my physical horse, but she's taught me so much. I mean, she's so elegant in her way of doing things. And at the ranch, they call her the diva. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. fair, but anyhow. (laughs) (laughs) So the next one that I got was Captain. And Captain is a purebred Morgan. He's a mental body. And he was very interesting what he taught me. He's he's actually the most fragile, sensitive of them all. And I thought about that. And I thought about my own mental, internal mental self. And it was like, that's probably true there also. That's probably where a lot of my insecurities arose. So it's all very interesting to me. And last, I got Monk. And Monk is a spiritual horse. He is a black and white gypsy oh my God, the things I've learned from Monk. And when I first bought him, I would have never bought him but for this scenario. I wasn't necessarily looking for another horse, although once you have one gypsy, you need more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I, I was watching the sale 
And it was during the day where I was supposed to be doing depositions because in my day job, I still work as an attorney. And I'm like, I don't have time to go to a horse sale today. And I'm like, we'll make one bid. And so he was going for 4,200. So I bid up to a maximum of 5,000. And I didn't look at it the rest of the day. At the end of the day, they said, you've bought yourself you know, a horse. So I <laughs> bought him and I hadn't planned on buying a horse. So it took me three weeks to go get him. I go to this place in you know, real rural Wyoming. It looked like the lunar landscape. And I pull up late because I got lost and he's tied to a hitching rail and he looks like a pony. I mean, like a tiny pony. He's got snot running out of both nostrils. I have never seen a horse sicker. And I'm looking at him and I'm just like, oh my, oh, you know, and I, I get my, I get my, I have one of the measuring sticks and I get it out because I I want to see how tall he is. And the guy comes up and he says, well, I told you he was 14-1. I said, yeah, you did. And then I'm like, Hertha, you're not buying this horse. You bought this horse. Right, so- <laughs> right. You're not You're not deciding to. Yeah. You've already done so it. <laughs> I get the lead rope and I say, Monk, I didn't have it named him yet. I said, come with me. And I kind of had in that mind, I still kind of called him a pony. So I get him home. I get him well. I start riding him. I love all my horses and I really love Monk. I can't say I love him the most, but oh my goodness. Yeah, I've got some the most beautiful pictures of him. And cows would not have been a gypsy's first skill. You know, that's not really in their DNA. <laughs> but but he went right to cow work, didn't he? He did. But but I have to tell you that the cows, since he looks so unique, <laughs> I think the cows are more likely when they have calves, they're like they act like they're gonna take him more than my other horses. Oh wow. <laughs> Because I I don't know what they think he's more scary or something. I mean, he's just a black and white gypsy, but he's also really forward. I've never had a horse as forward as as he is. I have to ride him so quiet and, and I have to be internally quiet. And that's what it also showed me about my spirit. That's your spiritual, right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You have to be in awareness, spiritually in awareness with him. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And when he climbs a hill, you know, a lot of horses get tired he goes faster the closer he gets to the top. <laughs> I also think that's a spiritual yeah, you know, trait. Yeah. You know, the cl- closer we get to the top, you know, we want to go. Do we want to see what's up there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So. And it's interesting you say that because my gypsies do the same thing. I've got that one pretty good hill getting into the ranch, and and they won't walk it. They've got to let. No, I want to see what's up there, and their ears are perked, not scared, <laughs> but perked. Like, oh, let's see if anybody's coming our way on the road, or you know, whatever it might be. So that's awesome. One of the things circling back to your book that I think I personally really enjoyed was I made an assumption that you had gone to college and went to law school and became an attorney. But you've had a fascinating life before you ever went to law school. So you started into college and did, if I remember, you became a journalist first? First, I studied pre-veterinary medicine and medicine at MSU. And I actually had two, I played varsity basketball and varsity rodeo while I was a pre-med, pre-vet student. And we lost our ranch while I was going to college. So I went to horseshoeing school and I became a horseshoer and I couldn't go straight through at that time because I'd have to take time off to work. So during the day I would shoe up to seven horses. Then I would go home and try to get the dirt from underneath my fingernails and put on a nice cummerbund and this, this skirt outfit and tend bar in a fancy bar until two in the morning. <laughs> and then I would do it all over again. So I did lots. Of, I also worked as a waitress and a janitor to pay for college. Then I took some time off and managed a ranch. 
And while I was managing the ranch, I started writing some articles and they didn't write them as letters to the editor. They wrote them as op-eds and people said you should become a writer. So I decided I wanted to be a writer and I went, I decided to go to the East Coast because I thought that people coming here to tell us how to do things was rude. And I thought if I were going to tell them how to think, if I didn't try to figure out how to live with them, I would be equally as rude. Mm-hmm. I got accepted into several schools in Philadelphia, but I decided to go to Temple because it was the land grant school. And remember, I'm mm-hmm. paying for everything. Mm-hmm myself are borrowing. And so I went to journalism school there and it took me a year and a half because I'd been to almost four years of pre-vet, pre-med. Right. So I totally switched (laughs) from a BS to a BA. And um, I got published. I got to write a lot because nobody else had the perspective I did. I once started an article. I used to be in solitude amongst 10,000 acres. And now I'm amongst 10,000 in less than an acre. (laughs) (laughs) That's Manhattan or D.C. or all that whole East Coast, right? Yeah. 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 And so... I became a journalist and then I would, I worked as a a stringer, you wrote stories and I was working on a story and I called DC. And a lot of times if you were working on agricultural stories, people in ag wouldn't talk to you. If you said you were a journalist, they wouldn't trust you. So I'd say, I used to be in 4-H, I used to be in FFA. I called the DC and they, they hear my introduction and he says, are you looking for a job? And I'm like, well, where? And they said, DC. And this was during the first Gulf War. And my initial response was no, but I thought, I'll interview. You know, I'm hungry. I don't have, I'm you know, having a hard time making, pay my bills. Literally hungry. Yeah, yeah. Right. I remember in your book, literally, you know, clothes was a big issue. Yeah. Food was a big issue. All of that. Yeah. So I go and interview in DC and within two weeks, I'm there on the job. And the funny thing was, is they said, well, we'll um, put you up at a hotel and we'll move all your stuff. And I'm like, well, it all fits in my escort. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought maybe I shouldn't tell them that I'm supposed to be a professional. I said, I'll get myself here, but I'll take you up. And they put me up in a hotel and they gave me a budget to eat food on for a day, which had been my weekly budget for years. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. So I covered Congress and the executive branch, Congress and the Supreme Court for about three years, three and a half years. And I covered a case in the Supreme Court that was on property rights. And I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to protect people and their rights. So I went back to Montana and went to law school. Then I went back to D.C. and clerked for the chief judge of the United States Court of Federal Claims. Do you have time for an interesting story about the judge? Sure. (laughs) Real quick. (laughs) Okay. So the judge knew Supreme Court justices. And so we're at this event and the other clerk who was from, you know, more of an upper tier, you know, law school pedigree, she says, introduce us to Justice Kennedy. And he says, yes, and he takes us over there. She's blonde and gorgeous. And I'm a little bit taller. And I had been not quite as put together as Monica. (laughs) And we go over and he says, I'd like to introduce you to my law clerks. And he said, this is Monica. And, you know, they talked. And then he said, and this is Hertha, the state champion horseshoer from Montana. (laughs) I would just die because I was trying to fit in on the East Coast. And I wasn't the state champion horseshoe. I was state champion in rodeo. And I was a champion, you know, making eagle eye shoes. He got them. Yes. Put, put them together. And, and it, you know, I just wanted to fit in. And Justice Kennedy says, do you know where Glendive is? He said, I used to work the oil rigs there. And he and I had this long conversation oh, about nice. our hard labor jobs in Montana. So Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. So it's, it's important. He got two things put together. The farrier, he remembered, the, you know, put them all together. That's great. Which is kind of your life. So you go to law school and and honestly for our listeners to understand 
Today, she is a graduate, soon-to-be dual graduate from my program, working her ranch with her husband and her horses. She is finishing this book, Awakenings, for sure, for everyone. She is an active law practice in Montana and still advocating for people's rights and has other attorneys working with her in her practice for that, and still finds time to do some very unique retreats on her beautiful Montana ranch. And if you're, you know, in interested in any or all of that, I believe Hertha is worth the trip to go to her Montana place, settle yourself down for a few days and really work on who you are and where lightning has struck in your life. Hertha herself has had multiple, multiple, multiple lightning strikes. So she's not somebody who's had one bad experience in life and has made a coach practice out of it. She was gifted by God with a lot of lightning strikes. So there's been a ton of them. And she's uh, healthy and whole and has done her own work and is ready to really stand strong to do work with her clients and has been doing work with her clients for the past few years very, very successfully. So for Horses to Wholeness is her .com. You can reach her that way. It's Hertha Lund, L-U-N-D. Her law practice is Lund Law, so they can remember it that way as well. Book will be coming out uh, at the end of 22, and it is called Awakenings. And we definitely will have you back on to just celebrate that book coming out as well, Hertha. So all of that is so important for you to know. Before I say who sponsors this show, do you have anything else you'd like to say to our listeners? Only that I feel it's so important to start the path of walking towards wholeness. After dying and come back, I am so grateful for this opportunity to be here with you, Melissa, and for what you've done and the people you've trained and what a difference it's made in my life. I literally feel feel like I brought back part of those feelings, but it took me this long to be able to start living them and feeling them and kind of being in that awareness day to day because I had to move those things that were still blocking it. And it was through the program and with the horses that I was able to do that. So thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Absolutely. And you're a beautiful coach. And I always feel like the whole program was me tossing what I knew how to do in the world into the center of a pond like a stone and the rings are echoing out from that. And you're a very important ring in my orbit. So I appreciate you a lot, Hertha. We are celebrating appreciation also to an organization called Hope Through Horses. You can see more about them on hopethroughhorses.com. Hope Through Horses is a nonprofit not affiliated with my own organization. It's a group of graduates that decided they wanted to find a way to raise money, start a nonprofit to help people either with a semester of tuition into the training program, but more importantly than that, that to really help people who say, I want to go in this case, I want to go see Hertha. I want to spend three days at her place and dig into my work and really get it done. And I got what her rates are and I need assistance in the air flight or I need assistance in part of her bill or whatever it might be. And Hope Through Horses does all of those things and helps people on a needs basis for that. So we thank Hope Through Horses for helping with our podcast and helping support uh, putting a podcast out 
are not free. They cost money to produce these things. Tahirtha, thanks so much for being on with me today. And Dane will be back with me on our next episode to see what the heck he's up to and the behind the scenes questions that that guy thinks of to ask me that stump me every week. So those are kind of fun. Blessed are those who do either come into your sphere to be one of your beautiful horses. Your husband is such a powerful, wonderful man. And I know he appreciates you greatly as well. And blessed are every single client that goes to work with you, Hertha. So thank you for being on with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Touched by a Horse podcast. If you'd like more information about anything we've talked about on the show today or our certification program, please visit our website at touchedbyahorse.com. That's touchedbyahorse.com. Or contact our office by phone at 303-440-7125. Also, be sure to keep up with us on social media. We're at Touched by a Horse on both Facebook and Instagram. See you around the barn and on the next episode.